Teaching Python. This is Sean Tiber. And this is Kelly Paredes. And this is episode six, gaining a deeper understanding of Python with coding challenges. How are you doing today, Sean? I'm doing well, Kelly. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. It's almost the first day back at school. You and I are here a few days ahead of schedule, putting our classroom back together because we had new carpet put in. Okay, so today we're going to be taking a deeper dive into more of the theory of teaching coding and how we can design our lessons and our approaches to be more experiential learning activities and take a more constructivist approach. Okay, so how do we define coding challenges? So the way that we've done this, and it fits a variety of situations and a variety of applications, we've defined them as, as coding problems that the teacher sets forward for the class. The teacher is challenging the students to solve a problem. And it can be done either in individually or in groups. Usually small groups are best. And the important thing is that while the problem is very well defined or very clear in terms of what's provided and what's not, the solution can take multiple different forms. So they are also time bound. So it can be a five minute challenge or a five day challenge or just something that has to be solved by the end of the semester or the end of the course. And they range in complexity as appropriate for the amount of time that they have. So for example, you know, one five-minute challenge that you do, Kelly, is giving the students existing code without any comments and having them add comments to explain what it does so they have to understand the code that's there and, and research it. I do a three-day challenge to create a game in Python where they're working together in teams and they have to make something that's a little bit more complex and a little bit larger. Another great example is a standing set of problems or a standing set of challenges that can be solved by students over the course of the the semester or the nine weeks or however long you have. So Kelly, how do you, how do these coding challenges improve our students' understanding of Python? Well, using these coding challenges is a is great for experiential uh, learning activities. It's it's like this opportunity to make the learners learn in an active way, where they're involved in a process with a meaning, with knowledge, and it's more of a construction approach versus this passive approach. And when we use this, when the students grow their understanding, we're, we're growing the understanding in Python and in just problem solving and critical thinking skills. There's so many benefits and ways to use this type of activities. It's something that I've always done in, in the past. As a science teacher, a lot of science teachers use this in a way in, in the lab experience. So coding challenges, lab experiments, exploration activities, things that are not designed to... There are many benefits and, and ways to use this type of activities and, and just some... So what are some of the benefits of this approach? How would you start this oh, type of activity? It allows you to use this questioning approach to, on a specific content or a specific coding function. You set up the questions and challenges in a form that are not always a, a yes-no question, then it's going to allow you as a teacher to identify the gaps in the learning. I use it a lot of the times to set the, the stage for my lesson, just to get an understanding of where the kids got the next the, the previous day and how much information they retained from the previous day. So I'll usually set up my five-minute challenges based on what I taught them the day before. And the how and why questions help lead the students into a, a better student engagement. 
the other thing that this does is it really gives a student an opportunity to do their own internal reasoning and their own process to get to the outcome. So we start them with those questions, how does this work, or why does it do it that way, or why does it work, and then they're able to take that as a starting point for their own internal thought process and reasoning, or with a partner, to get to some sort of answer to that question. So it really works well to get them get them going. Yeah, and one of the good examples I, I did for a five-minute cl- uh, challenge was I gave them about 22 lines of codes on a Space Invader. I found a program, just showed a, a, a start of a Space Invader game, and I, some, of the, some of the information was finding a function, it was doing a while true statement, and it had an if statement. And what I said is just type the code. You don't need to know right now what it is. Just type the code. What is it doing? And what is the if statement doing? Why is that if statement there? Just try to come up with an answer. And then from that, we talked about how they could use this piece of code for something else. So it was a really, it was a really fun activity. I, one of the challenges that I do is a longer, more in-depth challenge. And a big part of it and where they are getting their evaluation or their assessment is coming from questions that don't necessarily have to do with the code either. But they have to integrate a lot of knowledge from multiple sources in in order to be able to answer that question. So the questions don't have to be strictly focused on the Python code or on specific types of activities. It can be broader. And in fact, the best questions require students to integrate knowledge from a lot of different sources. Yeah, I really like these they, these types of challenges. They're really designed, again, can't iterate this enough, is they're designed to show what the students can master, if they have mastered a concept. And just using these, these challenges, it's given us a great formative understanding. And you can use it as a summative check-in if you want. I tend not to because I don't want to put that pressure on them. But just given that formative understanding and just helping us to reset. So when you provide a three-day challenge or a two-day challenge or a five-minute challenge, regardless of the time limit, it helps you to, to make a judgment of whether you're going to go forward onto a more difficult topic in Python or just to come back and say, hey, we're, we're going to stop right there. We're going to take a pause and we're going to reteach and relook at what we just taught a couple days ago. And especially for me being a new teacher, one of the things that's really helpful with this also is checking in with the student psychology and their cognitive abilities, how they approach problems, how they solve them. So for me, having gone through this twice now with the same set of challenges, being able to see the commonalities and the differences between each group of students to be able to understand how our students approach problems, what sorts of things cause them positive and negative stress, how that leads to the right outcome, and helping guide them better along the way. And again, that's going back to those simple skills of developing problem-solving techniques, critical thinking, inquiry-based, all those those buzzwords that we keep hearing about, and I'm sure you've heard a lot of us when we talk about it in our, in our faculty meetings or in our professional development, just how can we get the kids to be more proactive and critical thinking skills? And in, in reality, these kind of challenges just do that naturally. By not providing the answers so readily for the students and using the higher level thinking questions, how, why, it really just takes it to a different level. That's an interesting point for me as well. Coming out of university, I went to a very, I went to Carnegie Mellon, which is 
for many years has been practicing a you know, project-based learning approach, a lot of collaborative, cross-functional, cross-disciplinary learning uh, activities there. Uh, most famously probably is Randy Pausch's Building Virtual Worlds class. He was the, um, the author of the last lecture and one of the first uh, YouTube videos that went viral. But it's a great example of that kind of project-based challenge, not necessarily a well-defined solution, but a clearly defined problem. I found even when I was going to the working world and I was in my first job, the number of times where I did not have a clearly defined problem and I didn't have a clearly defined solution and the skills that I had built along the way to be able to get to a point or define it myself or to create it, it was still a big change. You know, my skill level had to jump up considerably going from an academic setting to a a corporate business setting. So the more I think we can, you know, help students understand this early on in their academic careers, it will help them be more successful, not just in academics, but along the way in the other pursuits that they engage in as well. Yeah, more proactive, right? More proactive in in seeking and using those skills and the knowledge that they have, I think. I think that's that's one skill that that regardless of the course, regardless of the age, if we can constantly and, and remind them how to be more proactive in their own learning and their own judgment and their own resurfacing of knowledge, then I think it's going to help. Yeah, I would say it, another way to put it is getting students to be comfortable resolving ambiguity. Oh, yeah. So if, if, if nothing else, just this idea that th- there are things that are ambiguous mm-hmm. and recognizing that when it occurs and being able to formulate a plan for that, being, being proactive about resolving that ambiguity is really a critical skill. Yeah, and that takes us to a good social-emotional learning skill as well. So another reason why we have the coding challenges, it just allows them to make that emotional connection to the coding. It really by allowing that emotional kind of, I don't know, some kids take it as a happy or excitement. Some people take it as a, you know, frustration level, but there is a connection regardless of the the positive side of the emotion or the negative side. But that emotional connection allows them to remember the code and it really engages the student, pushes them to, to learn outside of their personal comfort zone. And sometimes when it's different kids getting those challenges at different times. Sometimes the kids that you didn't think would get the challenges, they actually get it first. And I guide them into becoming sort of the teachers in a way that they're not giving the answer to their friends, but they're helping them to come through with the answer. And so it's kind of a fun. Yeah, I think that works really well because then they're they're all also more self-aware of how they learn, right? That metacognitive approach as well. If they have to help someone else learn without giving them the answers, they're more aware of the process that they go through themselves. So, and, and I think the other thing that's really important about this versus other types of student activities and assessments is that the challenge re- is designed to result in a unique solution. Mm-hmm. It's something that is created by the student or by the, the set of students that is unique and different than anything else. So they've created something new to the world and there's a lot more personal satisfaction in that when they overcome the challenge, when they meet, rise to meet the occasion and come up with something that's unique and different. What I've seen is that that's a lot more relevant and meaningful to them as an accomplishment than a numeric grade on a test or a letter grade on a test. Yeah, it was actually it reminds me of a five-minute challenge I did right before Christmas 
we had, they had to design a function for a Christmas or Hanukkah song or salutation. And we had just talked about how to define or make a function. And the only, the only information I provided for them, I gave them a very short instructions that said design a function for a Christmas or Hanukkah song or salutation. I gave them the basic uh, deaf song and parameter, code block, code block, plus parameter or code block, and then song parameter. And that's all I gave them on the challenge. And I told them define the function first and then write the code inside. And, you know, some of the kids, they got the happy birthday and they happy birthday to, you know, name. But one of my students, she just went crazy and started coding. She came back and I think she wrote about 16 lines of codes where it was an if-then statement. So if you're Christian, choose Christmas song. And if you are Jewish, choose Hanukkah salutation. So she was one of those that was engaged by that challenge and she really liked it. So again, going back to that. The other thing is the, that's great about this is that you can create a challenge that ranges from a five-minute challenge to a week-long, to a semester-long challenge. So you have the ability to scale it up and down according to the learners that you have in your classroom. And so we've gone through sort of a progression in the way the content of those challenges. Um, but I wouldn't say that it's like a strict progression. It's not like we leave anything behind. In fact, we reuse a lot of these at various points along the way. But Kelly, where do you start with these five-minute challenges that you've you've come up with? Like, what's the first type of challenge that a student has to overcome, as an example? The first, very first challenge is learning how to download Moo. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think in week two, a lot of the challenges I give them are, are quite simple. One of the ones I give them in the very first couple of days of week two is here's a loop here's a, a four y and range loop here's what it does on the micro bit and then i say type that in because i feel i feel if they type it and not copy and paste it at least they get it it's it's engaging all senses you have to read it they have to type it they have to physically run it and then after i've done that it's a micro bit challenge so i say what does the display dot scroll do I don't teach display.scroll. It's pretty simple. I mean, for us, we look at it and say display.scroll. Oh, it's going to do, it's going to just show an X. But what this did is for them to think about why did I put a display.scroll X on the micro bit? What did it show them? And what I was trying to get them to see was it was a nested loop and that it went 25 times through the series of the four Y and range loop and the four X and range. And a couple of the kids were, they were talking. Well, it just shows that you know, there's an X and it's scrolling across. And I was like, but why, but why, but why? So something as simple as a, a for loop and having them to engage in a deeper conversation. It took us longer than five minutes to get through this challenge, but it was a great conversation that we had, so. Nice. I, I think the other one that I really like that you do is a, a commenting challenge. So providing students with a code set without comments and requiring them or challenging them to provide the comments that explain what each line is doing. I've also included that in larger challenges as well, where I've put comment uh, lines in the code with numbers next to it and asked the students to come up with as many comments as they can for those challenges. I think that's a really, a really good one to use. You know, the other one that's worked well as a short challenge is providing pseudocode. Mm -hmm. and getting the students to write Python from that. So the ability for them to understand the program flow and then translate that into 
code that will execute cleanly. That was one of the ones I did in the right before we left, which was a different one than I did the first quarter as well. I like that I called it from flow chart to code. We got, I think that got that from your makeup artist and I saw you doing that. And I found this really good website that had a couple of flow charts on there. It was almost written out line for line in Python but missing or there were a lot of mistakes, either the capital, the input was all in capitals or the, the quotes weren't there. And so what I had them do is just write again a user, a user friendly prompt and input from a flow chart. And I like that. They actually, they, they started to feel more confident in their coding and being able to read it from a flowchart, they were like, oh yeah, there's an if statement. Oh, that's a conditional and I have to set it up a different way. So that was fun. What are some of the other coding challenges that you like to use for for improving your own Python understanding and which of those have translated back into the class? Again, I, I found the flowchart one. That was one of the ones I was practicing on for myself because I'm still on the tip of the iceberg as a Python coder. We'll go into that later at a different episode about there's an iceberg and I'm on the tip and you're probably down in the, in the water a little bit. But I, I used the flowchart challenge for myself and I've actually, this one that I found, I was searching for new ones uh, besides the Fingster and the coffee break because that's what I liked about uh, Dan's book. He uses a lot of 20 minute, 10 minute coding challenges. And to be honest, the one that I'm looking at now is again, that codinggame.com just trying to get little snippets. For me, I think if I can apply for loops in a different way, or if I can think of how to input information or whether it's a click or a movement or whatever, I think that helps me to solidify those problems. How about you? I'm finding a lot actually through Twitter, a lot through tutorials online, things that are, are new packages or new areas of Python that I haven't learned yet. And along the way, what I find interesting about that is that there's something new that I'm learning about about Python as I'm doing that. For example, being able to look at generators or decorators as I'm starting to go through some of these other libraries and packages is helping me grow my my own understanding of Python and making my code both more Pythonic but also a little bit more sophisticated, a little bit more elegant, and hopefully a little bit more efficient too. Yeah, you're becoming a Pythonista like me. (laughs) (laughs) I found this really good website a couple days ago as well when I was searching for coding challenge activities by Adrian Newman, and it was really interesting. This person is a, a TA. I haven't tried them, but he also uses Coded Challenge or she, it's a very simple, simple website from GitHub, but in the elementary level, and they go all the way down into the advanced level with some GUIs, and I found it was really interesting. We'll put a we'll put a link to that on our Twitter page, but I thought it was interesting that he even goes with some of the simple ones that we do, write a program that prints a multiplication table for numbers up to 12, all the way down to write a function that concatenates two lists. Right. So I think these little activities, whatever you can do to challenge them and challenge yourself, because a couple of these, even getting into the elementary ones have to stump, you know, stump me for a little bit, make me have to think a little bit harder. And I think these kind of things help you just grow. One of the other things that, that's really important with challenges is that there has to be constraints. Mm-hmm. You have to have some sort of constraint on the challenge. 
a good example of this is you know we talked about the time bound constraint. There's a time timing constraint to it. One of the things that I've been working on over the break, and it's been both a, a struggle but a very good growth opportunity for me, is looking to get code running on the micro bit that's a little bit more than the micro bit can handle in my first version of it. And so that process of optimizing and reducing and simplifying and streamlining to be able to fit the micro bits heap size is really a great exercise and a great challenge for me to think more critically about how I'm writing my code and what I can do to optimize it and streamline it. So I've gone from a very a very fancy object-oriented approach to running everything in dictionaries and lists just for just to minimize my memory usage and minimize the amount of string concatenation that I'm doing and string literals. So it's really been a, a great exercise for me that's making my code run a little bit faster. And now I'm interested to get back onto my desktop away from the micro bit and see if I can optimize some of the desktop code that I was writing for this to see if I can get it to run faster also. You sent me your your code and I was sitting on the beach in, in Lima looking at it and it was kind of cool. For me that was a challenge and I started to read pre-written code because I read a lot of pre-written code to try to teach myself different things in different libraries and just trying trying to look where you were asking me to look to see where if the genetics and the biology part was feasible or something. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a good challenge for me and having you write the code at a higher level and then for me to try to understand some of the, you know, the functions that I don't know yet. Um, that was interesting. And, and what was that fuzzy wuzzy? I started looking. I was so excited about it. And I was like, you have to use fuzzy wuzzy library. Yeah, the, the micro bit definitely <laughs> will not handle fuzzy wuzzy right now. But maybe in the future, we'll be able to get there. And that's the challenge, I think. And a lot of the times on the, on the podcast that we listen to, they say, it's not really Python that's challenging. I think it's the challenges is knowing how to write good Python code and finding the libraries that are already written so you don't double up your work. There's certainly also an element of research, of exploring, of finding um, good optimized code libraries you can work with. There's also an element of peeling back the onion mm -hmm. where as you solve one problem it might reveal other questions that you want to understand. So for example, now, I'm running out of memory on the micro bit when I try to run my code. Well, why is that? How is the memory architecture on the micro bit set up? What do I have to work with? What constraints do I have? How can I even measure how much memory is free? That's, and that's so, like a great uh, five minute challenge for, for your eighth graders right there is how much memory is on a micro bit and how many programs or big programs can you put on there? It's going to be an interesting challenge as we go deeper into this project to see how far we can take it, where I get, derive my own personal satisfaction from coding challenges, is that you can make a breakthrough and it opens up many other opportunities for you. So right now my version of the code is optimized from where I started, but there's further optimizations that I can do. There's more that I can do to, to you know, improve my memory handling within the code that I'm writing, but then that opens me up for other features and other functionality now that I have more memory to work with. That's really good. I think, think we want to just iterate on why we prefer, hopefully you get an understanding of why we prefer coding challenges. And I'm sure for a lot of teachers that those activities of coding challenges is not something new. I think the difference from where we stand in, in terms of other curriculum is that we spend probably about 75 to 80% of our class time in a challenge mode versus in a, a passive learning 
mode. And I think that is a shift that's been coming along in, in education recently. And I say recently in the United States, it's, it's not necessarily in, in international system. I think they had a lot of that shift going on, but in our curriculum, more of that constructivist approach, more of that student is the lead, things that you hear, all those buzzwords. Yeah, I think even coming away further from the dialogue and the discussion-based learning, there's definitely a place for that, but the proportion for us seems to be more, you know, maybe 15 to 20% is direct instruction, another 15 to 20% is discussion and dialogue with the class, and then the remaining time is all about the challenge, and Mm -hmm. it's about the the student hands-on learning code by doing code. Absolutely, and that's the real test. There's no reason to give that multiple choice, you know, how much can you memorize? Because the real test is whether they can do the challenges. And if you, if you even do a tally mark like I do, whether it's mental or in your grade book of did they get the five minute challenge, you're going to have a better understanding of where that student lies in their coding process than you will from a multiple choice question or quiz. Yeah. And of course, some of this is harder to scale with the more students that you have in the classroom. So the more that you can add processes or structure to the the feedback mechanisms, mm-hmm. that will help you. So if you're in a small classroom uh, where you have eight to 10 students, you may be able to do this very organically and very fluidly. If you're teaching to a class of 25 or 30 students and they're all doing a coding challenge, to be able to structure your feedback, whether that's with a Google form or some sort of feedback mechanism at the end of class that allows them to you know, raise their hand and say, here's where I did well, here's where I didn't, you know, their own self-reflection and feedback to you through those those structures can be very valuable in terms of your ability to really connect with the student and make sure that they're getting the individualized uh, you know, instruction that they need. Yeah, sometimes on my five-minute challenge, it's a little bit more chaotic approach to feedback. Uh, the first five people to run up to my desk with the correct answer gets the prize of the student who I love the best that day. Right. So, <laughs> so not always the typical teacher feedback approach, but the kids get it, and that again gets that emotional connection to the code, the the intrinsic value of being the the kid that gets it first. That for me is a, a, one of the benefits and the pluses of having the coding challenges. One of the things that is different about this versus group project is that the coding challenge is much more directed and focused in terms of the problem that you're working on. The import, and that goes, that complements the group project. The other thing that's important about this is that group projects and coding challenges are two different things that complement each other very well. So group challenge is a more focused, more directed problem solving approach where the student has an outcome that they're seeking, even if it has a couple different forms that it could take. We're defining group projects as being more open-ended in terms of the student directing the definition of the problem that they're going to solve. So it becomes more of like a design thinking approach to solving problems using code in order to solve that, um, at least in our classroom. So we see those as going kind of hand in hand. The group projects tend to be longer, more open-ended, a little bit less structured in terms of the the domain, the problem domain, um, but more structured in terms of the project approach and the the design thinking approach. So as you're thinking about this, this is not intended to replace group projects. It's it's important to complement the two together. And you'll find that as you're employing more coding challenges, your group projects get better because 
students are more comfortable with defining problems and seeking solutions for them. Yeah, and I think I think just to reiterate on that, um, we're not saying that you have to do a five-minute coding challenge every single day like we do, although I find that as that also has set up my routine. We also do add in those group challenges and I think you were going to explain a couple things about yeah, that. Yes, so I've, got, I've got a couple group challenges that I do where it's a little bit longer, a three to four day challenge uh, in groups. And I have two that I'm, I'm currently doing, one for my sixth grade class, which is less Python focused, although they always have the option to, to write it in Python. Uh, it's a compass challenge, so they're using the microbit to make a digital compass. The the problem definition is that they need to create a compass and find landmarks around our campus and bearings to landmarks using their microbit to do that. And in order to to make that happen, many of our students have never had any exposure to backpacking, hiking, you know, anything where they would actually use a compass to do map reading or anything like that. So they have to learn everything about how a compass works, how the magnetic field works on the earth, all the way through to actually writing the code and understanding how they can get the bearings that they need. And then their final outcome is to actually go out and get those bearings from our from a known reference point on our campus. And as long as they're within a, you know, a margin of error, they get points for getting that right answer. So the right answer in this is really, the points are not so much for getting the actual degrees of the bearing to that landmark, it's for the process that they go through to get there. But the challenges they have to overcome are really understanding things like what's magnetic declination? How does a compass really work? what is the the 360 degree system that we use for measuring bearings and angles and how then how do i actually implement that on the microbit what can i use in order to make that happen and i can show them different ways to make that work and i see a whole variety of solutions come back many of them are not quite correct in terms of the the math behind it but their thought process becomes very clear in the challenge when they're providing their solution. Yeah, and it helps them, again, you're going back to developing their problem-solving techniques of encouraging that critical thinking. We know the answers out there. We know that they can Google most of that solution, but it's that inquiry based of knowing how to start searching for that and how what, what questions do they need to ask in order to solve the problem. And again, making them become more proactive and they're using previous knowledge or skills in order to find a solution. Yeah, and the way that that really works well in, in this case is that I also offer extension opportunities for the students. So there are ways for them to extend their knowledge and understanding of the, the problem and receive extra credit or extra points for that. So as an example, there's a core set of questions that they need to answer and understand. And there's a core set of functionality that they need to implement. But then there's an extension into you know, ways to improve upon the solution or ways to make the, the compass challenge more interesting to them. So for example, many of my students will make their own compass rows that the microbit fits into that is both practical and it gives them the, the, re, the reference points and the cardinal directions to work from, but it's also something that they can apply their own creativity and, and personal ownership over the problem and its solution to the, the microbit. And that just, again, highlights, again, the, the importance of providing that wide range of levels and a wide range of challenges within a challenge, depending on the student, depending on their their ability to code and their, their level of understanding. And I see that a lot with the eighth grade challenge that I do as well, where it's a guess the number game. And I provide them with some stub code 
in Python as well as a, a flow chart and some specific requirements, features that they have to implement in their guess the number game, but then there's opportunities for them to extend that as well. So once they solve the core problem and they get the random number generation and they get the, the program flow working correctly, then they can extend that. And I really enjoy seeing how those students extend it in many different ways, everything from you know validation checking and, and making sure that the, the user input is valid and correct to being able to look at error handling and things that are very kind of fundamental programming techniques to people writing complex narratives and stories about why you're guessing this number. And so I've seen everything from a, a guess how many Bitcoin I have in my wallet to a holiday-themed Frosty the Snowman guess the number challenge. And so that that ability for students to express themselves in the challenge and seek a solution that's personalized and tailored to them really makes it much more valuable. And after my first course was over and I asked for course feedback, that challenge was one of the moments that many of the students identified as being a breakthrough for them in terms of their understanding of how the code was actually working and really feeling like they had ownership and agency over their own code. Yeah, what I liked about that is all the most about that project that you did is that reflection piece where they had to provide a, a Flipgrid reflection. Again, providing that opportunity for the kids to reflect on what they're doing, why they did it, why they had problems, and not necessarily say, um, I had problems because it was hard, but really, what was the outcome? Was it what they expected? What were the errors? And why were there errors and what happened? And it's the, the outcome was not what they intended situation. And given just that ability to reason and talk through the reason is something that I really like about that, that challenge. Yeah, I, it, what I found so far is that the challenge is when you stretch kids, it, when you stretch them to go beyond their abilities or to solve something that they don't know, that's where the best growth comes from. That's where they are really able to make the breakthroughs, make the connections, make the things that integrate their knowledge in a, in a new and interesting way for them. It's all about that depth of learning. I think sometimes when we talk about the start of Python or coding, we're, we are only hitting a, an iceberg, the top. We don't have that much time with them, but we are getting a, a deeper understanding of, of how Python works and why Python works and the things that we can do with Python through our coding challenges, through our extended projects, and even our couple of day projects, I just gaining that deeper knowledge is something that we all strive for as teachers. And I, I, I we feel that this this method is really working for us. I was. It's interesting you mentioned that because I was listening to to talk Python earlier today, and they were talking about why Python in particular works so well as a first programming language. And one of the reasons for that is. And it was described as a full spectrum coding language, right? Where it, you can start with it and you don't need to know all of the advanced, sophisticated, professional grade, enterprise grade things that Python can do when you first get started. You can literally start with a print hello world and that's a complete program. And then grow from there. And as you need to learn things, you can apply them. So what I'm seeing from our students is as they go through these challenges, that's when they start to unlock those higher level pieces within Python and it grows with them as they go. I'm really interested to see what our what our listeners come up with with some coding challenges. I just wanted to add one more great website that I that I discovered again a couple of days ago. It's 
it's a medium post we'll provide the link on there but it's the the 10 best and this is old the 10 best coding challenge websites for 2018 now they're in 2019 but it goes all the way from beginner intermediate to advanced on there i i like this one on number nine geeks for geeks i think that's more your level than uh, mine and uh just have a play with them this is where i found the coding games and it's a great post and uh, we'll put the link on our website excellent so I think we'll wrap it up here and move on with the last remaining hours of our winter break. But before we go, I just wanted to remind you, again, you can find us on Twitter at TeachingPython. We're also at TeachingPython.fm on the web. And as a reminder, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes. You can find the link at slash iTunes for Apple Podcasts. If you wouldn't mind, please leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn or wherever you get your podcast feed. The more reviews that we get, the more that that helps us both develop and grow, but also gets our podcast in front of more people. Yeah, remember, we're, we're uh, new at this, me new at coding. I'm new at teaching. So. so any feedback that you can get, we know that feedback always is a, is a positive motivator for all learners. And if you find yourself with a new challenge and there's a way that we can help, please don't hesitate to reach out to us on Twitter. And so this is Sean. This is Kelly. Signing off.